It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast, coming in 3, 2, 1. Hi, this is Rob Sparks, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. This is our monthly Noir Lab podcast, NSF's Noir Lab, the National Optical Infrared Astronomy Research Lab. And today we've got a really interesting uh, group here to talk to, and I'm going to let them start to introduce themselves. First of all, I'd like to introduce Dr. Zhaosheng Wang, and I'll let him introduce himself and tell him a little about himself. Uh, I'm a professor at the University of San Francisco. I'm also an affiliate at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. And, uh, you know, I uh, work on observational cosmology. Okay, great. And we have some, uh, some of your students who helped with this project that we're going to talk about today. I'd like to meet them now. William Shu, would you introduce yourself, please? Hi, yeah. Uh, I'm an undergrad at Berkeley. I study physics and CS, and I work under um, Shaosheng, helping him with his research. Okay. And Christopher Storfer? Hi, I'm Chris, and uh, I'm from Hawaii originally. I am a recent graduate of the University of San Francisco, and uh, I have just earned my degree in physics. And finally, Andy Gu. Hi, um, I'm an undergrad at Berkeley. I'm a rising junior studying physics and computer science like William, and um, I'm from Toronto originally, and I've been with this group for one year. Oh, great. I love Toronto. Great city. Been there several times. But today we're going to talk about uh, gravitational lenses today. So first, what is a gravitational lens and how are they formed? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so any massive object in the universe can act like a gravitational lens, whether it's a star or a galaxy or a group of galaxies. But the type of uh, gravitational lenses that we're interested in are uh, galaxies. And so I will use galaxy as an example. But what I'm about to say actually applies to the other types of gravitational lenses as well. So imagine you, you have two galaxies, the two galaxies, uh, one closer to us, another one much further away. And uh, there's no reason, uh, you know, there could be billions of light years uh, between them. So there's no reason why they would line up. But let's say that by chance, they line up relative to Earth or almost line up. In that case, the light coming from the background galaxy can be bent by the gravity of the foreground, foreground galaxy. And that bending of the light causes the formation of a distorted image of the background galaxy. Uh, actually, depending on how the alignment, how good the alignment is, sometimes it is possible for the light coming from the background galaxy to reach Earth through two different paths around the foreground galaxy. Again, this is because of gravity, the, the effect of the gravitational field that can cause the light to bend around it. Uh, and that can make two paths, that can make possible two paths for light to reach Earth, in which case you will see two images of the same background galaxy. So this is sort of a more intuitive way of thinking about it. But a more correct and, in my mind, cooler way of understanding gravitational lensing. Oh, by the way, so that's where it gets its name, because when it bends light, it acts as though it's an optical lens. And you can sort of see um, the optical 
uh, analog of this phenomenon, uh, when you look at a picture, a photograph, say, uh, through the stem of a wine glass. Um, but a more correct or cooler way of understanding this is that the gravity of the foreground galaxy distorts the space-time around it. And uh, it's a little bit like this. When the space-time is distorted around the foreground galaxy, um, you couldn't see it, right? Because, you know, there's, there's nothing to reveal that the space-time around the foreground galaxy has been distorted. It's a little bit like if, if a river is flowing sort of in a very calm way, you can't even see the water moving. But if you sprinkle a little bit, you know, dye particles in, into the, the river, you will be able to see, oh, you know, the river is actually flowing. So in the same way, if you have a background galaxy, the light coming from that background galaxy, when it passes through the distorted space-time around the foreground galaxy, the foreground galaxy, it reveals the distortion of space-time. So to me, it's really cool because when people ask me, you know, Einstein's theory, general relativity predicts, you know, says that space-time can be distorted. Is that really true? Absolutely. When you look at gravitational lensing, you're looking at the distortion of space and time. Well, that's great. That's, that's a neat way of describing it. I also love that wine glass experiment. We've, I've done that one before, too, to illustrate gravitational lensing. Yeah. But your group discovered a whole lot of new gravitational lenses in the Dark Energy Camera Legacy Survey, also known as DECALS. So what is DECALS, and how do you search this uh, data for gravitational lenses? Yeah, so first let me uh, say one other thing about gravitational lensing, which is that this uh, by chance alignment happens for about 1 in 10,000 galaxies. Uh, and so it's very rare. And uh, so in the past, meaning let's say up to about 5, 10 years ago, something like that, uh, certainly 10 years ago, and possibly uh, even as recently as 5 years ago, astronomers, astrophysicists used to just look at lots and lots of images and discover them by chance. And when they find one or two or three, they will write a paper. Oh, you know, we found, you know, three gravitational lensing systems because these are so rare and they're very useful, which I hope we'll um, get to later. Um, now, DECALS is part of a, a very large imaging survey uh, and it's called uh, the DESI Legacy Imaging Survey. Uh, so, let me parse that out a little bit. So DESI stands for the Dark Energy Spectroscopic Instrument. And it is an amazing instrument that is able to, that is capable of taking the spectra of 5,000 galaxies with one pointing. And the goal of that is to map out tens of millions of galaxies in the universe to study cosmology, to study how the universe evolves. But before you can do that, you have to know where the galaxies are. So Preceding the actual DESI experiment, there is a, a campaign to observe millions, tens of millions of galaxies over one-third of the sky. And so that came to known as the Legacy Imaging Survey, surveys or uh, Legacy Surveys. So there are two parts, uh, there, there are two uh, 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 subregions to that survey. Uh, and one of those uh, two regions is called decals. And, uh, um, and then there's another part that's closer to the uh, northern uh, celestial pole. Uh, and that survey is called the M MZLS uh, uh, BASS uh, um, survey. And uh, 
for the most part, what I'm about to say apply to both surveys. And together, they're known as the legacy surveys. And so it is a survey that is carried out in three filters. Um, uh, in the G filter, which you can sort of think of it as, as, the, as, as a, you know, a blue filter. And then the R filter, which is kind of a, a, a red filter. And then the, and the Z filter, which is sort of um, infrared filter just outside uh, the, uh, the uh, human sensitivity, the, the sensitivity of, of the human eye. The wavelength range is just red. Uh, just a little bit redder than the, than than what the humans, uh, when the human eyes are able to see. And uh, so, for both regions, uh, every patch of the sky is observed with the three filters, and uh, and this is uh, one of the largest survey, and that observes the sky to um, uh, a very uh, a faint. Uh, magnitude, and that is to say that it is um, able to observe objects, galaxies that are very, very faint. Um, so you, when you combine the, the the area and the depth, it's one of the largest surveys to date. And um, as I said earlier, tens of millions, actually hundreds of millions of galaxies will be observed in the survey. And the uh, if you are tr if you try to find gravitational lenses in this survey by eye, uh, by looking through tens of millions of galaxies, actually, as I said, hundreds of millions of galaxies, it is just not humanly possible. And so we I mean, with a lot of graduate students, a lot of graduate students. Right? <laughs> you know, uh, the advantage is that lots of thesis will be written. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, you know, it's a very very slow, you know, kind of um, uh, tedious work. Um, now, um, we also know that from other fields, um, particularly the field of machine learning, we know that uh, artificial neural networks uh, are, you know, we're becoming very good at image recognition and classifying images. So we thought about, you know, we should try to use a artificial neural network to uh, do the hard work for us to, um, you know, select among the hundreds of hundreds of uh, uh, millions of images, which ones are gravitational lenses, which ones are not gravitational lenses, um, and uh, so um, so we, we, what we decided to do was we took a neural network that won the competition for recognizing simulated lenses. Uh, so there was an international uh, uh, competition where um, the organizers simulated uh, images that contain gravitational lensing systems and images that do not contain gravitational lensing systems. Uh, and then they, you know, put out a call and, uh, you know, several dozen teams around the world enter the competition. And uh, we took the winning entry as the, uh, uh, we took that algorithm uh, and uh, applied it to our data set. Now, up to this point, almost every team that used, so there were a couple of teams around 2018 that have used artificial neural network to search for gravitational lenses in large surveys. But a neural network needs to be trained before it can recognize what is a lens, what is not a lens. So, you know, for, 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 for members of your audience who, you know, may not 
know that much um, uh, about artificial neural networks. In fact, we had to learn everything, you know, from the ground up because, you know, we were not uh, 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 specialists in, in machine learning. So, you know, we had to uh, learn how that works ourselves. So it is um, a network of artificial neurons that in a way mimic the biological neurons, how the neurons are connected and interact with each other in our brain. Um, and so just as I would have to train a student how to recognize a gravitational lensing system versus something that does not contain a gravitational lensing system, so an artificial neural net needs to be trained. And, and up to 2018, the two or three other groups that have used uh, artificial neural networks to recognize, to look for gravitational lensing systems, they've trained their neural networks on simulated images. And the reason for that is because there were only a few hundred systems uh, observed, uh, the actual gravitational systems uh, that have been discovered. And the general thinking is that it takes more than, you know, a small, that small number of images to train a neural net. But we decided to give it a try to use actual observed images of gravitational lenses uh, along with lots of other images that do not contain gravitational lens system, systems to train our neural network. And Chris was one of the students uh, that started out uh, this project with us. Um, and uh, so maybe I'll turn it over to him to talk about that aspect, that aspect a little bit. Uh, yeah, so in order to uh, effectively train the neural network, we, like Shashang said, we had to compile uh, a large training sample of the known lenses uh, at the time. And of course, we were severely limited by the number of known lenses when we first started this project. And so compared to, you know, these samples of simulated image, uh, gravitational lensing systems uh, that other groups can simulate to train neural networks, uh, which can be up to, you know, tens of thousands, we were limited to a few hundred. Uh, and so we weren't sure if it was going to work at first. Um, but after collecting this, this sample of, of known lenses and training our neural network on both the lenses as well as, you know, uh, images of other galaxies and non-lenses, uh, we trained our neural network effectively and deployed it on stamp size cutout images of millions of galaxies in the uh, legacy survey, as Shashang mentioned. And the neural network would uh, output predicted probabilities for each of these stamp size cutout images, the probability of it being strong lensing. And so we would set a threshold. And if the probability was above a given threshold, we would uh, classify it as a recommendation, a neural network recommendation. So, so let me, let me jump in, say, 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 say just a little bit. <laughs> the, uh, the, um, uh, it's, it was an experiment. And the reason that we were willing to do that was because, um, uh, it was not clearly understood, uh, how a neural network exactly worked. Uh, and so we were willing to take that risk, but also because we knew we were taking a risk, we tried to be very careful in assemble the training sample, the, the, the collection of images that we were trained a neural network on. 
So people who are using uh, simulations, they can just you know feed hundreds of thousands of images into the neural, net, neural network. We only have about uh, twenty thousand total images. About six hundred of those are lenses. And so what we decided to do was for the remaining uh, images that are not lenses, we decided that we would not just randomly select, you know, twenty thousand images. Instead, we would uh, look through. You know, some of them are randomly selected, but five thousand of them, so about a quarter of them, we selected them by, by hand. Meaning, we looked through quite a few images to pick the ones that the neural network could confuse. Uh, could be confused whether it's a lens or not lens. And so that was one reason that our training was successful, that which allowed us to find uh, hundreds of new lenses. Okay, so, so what other issues did you have in finding these uh, hundreds of lenses? Uh, that's, uh, that's a very good question, actually. So... What are the issues? So one of those things that we discovered, and this is, you know, you know, you know, uh, true to nature about how scientific research goes. What we found, well, there are two things. One is that uh, there are many other images that are um, at the resolution that a ground-based observatory uh, can achieve, can look very much like a gravitational lens, but is not. And so one of those uh, types of objects are called ring galaxies. And, uh, and so, so let me come back to the explanation of gravitational lensing a little bit more. So imagine you have a foreground, foreground galaxy and a background galaxy. And let's say the alignment is perfect. Then the light from the background galaxy can reach Earth from all directions. In which case, you will see a ring around the foreground galaxy, and it's called the Einstein ring. And the background galaxies, which were formed earlier in the history of the universe, those galaxies are strongly star-forming. Now, excuse my tense, because we're talking about past, but we are observing it now, so I'm going to use the present tense. So these galaxies are strongly star-forming, and the galaxies that have very, str very strong star-forming activities tend to be very, very blue. Whereas the foreground galaxy... If you want the foreground galaxy to be a likely lens, in other words, if you want the foreground galaxy, if you want the gravity of the foreground galaxy to be strong enough to cause lensing to happen, the foreground galaxy typically is an elliptical galaxy. The elliptical galaxy has lots and lots of dead red stars, so it appears reddish. So when the Einstein ring forms, you will have a red galaxy surrounded by a blue ring. Guess what a ring galaxy looks like? It looks exactly like that. It has a red core surrounded by a blue ring. And those galaxies are about one in a thousand. And so that was the first uh, uh, obstacle. Uh, that, that was the first thing that I had, to, I had to tell my students that, oh, no, 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 those are not uh, Einstein ring. These are ring galaxies. Now, in some cases, it's clear. If the galaxy is close by enough, if the foreground galaxy is close by enough, you can tell whether it's a ring galaxy or... Uh, you know Einstein ring gravitational lensing, but but if the if that galaxy if that foreground galaxy is not close enough, you you just can't tell. And so when we submitted our results for publication, we graded our lens candidates into three categories A, B, and C. And in some of the for some of the candidates in the C category, 
we 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 just say we couldn't tell whether these are ring galaxies or um, you know actual gravitational lensing events. Okay, so what can we learn from these large collections of gravitational lenses that you've assembled? Well, so in astronomy, one of the challenges is that because this is not a, a laboratory science, uh, we don't have control over the system that we study. Uh, and so one of the, um, the, the uh, so one of the mysteries in, in uh, cosmology today uh, is dark matter. Dark matter consists uh, about uh, 85% of all matter uh, in the universe, uh, but they are not visible. We can only observe their gravitational effects. And gravitational lensing, particularly strong gravitational lensing, is one of the most, actually strong gravitational lensing is the most direct way, is the only direct way to study dark matter around the core of a galaxy. Um, but if we want to understand the nature of dark matter using gravitational lensing, one issue we have to contend with is that sometimes you have a foreground galaxy that could perturb the path of the light just a little bit so that our results is you know, biased in a particular direction because of that perturbation. And this is one of the things that um, uh, people who study gravitational lensing uh, have struggled with. But now we are discovering hundreds, close, you know, now over a thousand systems. The, when you have a very large number of systems, what you can do is you can study the, the nature of dark matter for each system. The chance of nature would conspire in such a way that your result, your conclusion about dark matter would all be biased in the same direction for every system is almost zero. And so the fact that you, you can study, you know, hundreds, if not, if not thousands of gravitational lensing systems and to draw a conclusion based on all of those systems, so sometimes we refer to a large collection of systems like that, an ensemble, when you draw conclusions based on the ensemble, your conclusions are much more robust about the nature of dark matter. Okay, super. And uh, William, would you like to tell us about what you did on this project? Uh, sure. Uh, prior, prior to the summer, I helped with trying to augment our, um, or trying to improve our um, gravitational, or our neural net for looking for gravitational lenses. So I guess... The main obstacle in that search is that, you know, um, we don't have a lot. I mean, in terms of real gravitational lens systems, there isn't a whole bunch compared to simulated data. So that really limits on that really limits how we train the uh, neural net and how much it can do. So uh, I guess one of the things that I worked on was trying to um, train the neural network on simulated data and transfer over what it learned, the features that it tries to identify over to real data. And uh, I guess our group tried a bunch of different techniques from transfer learning to uh, ADDA, which is domain adaptation, uh, to maybe uh, to just for our training data, we just added 
both simulated and real data normalized uh, into the uh, to the network and see how it works. And they all had limited results, um, but not to the results of what um, who are improved neural network, which Andy worked on. Maybe he could talk about. Sure. Yeah. So there really are just um, a, comp- a wide variety of techniques that we can use when it comes to neural networks. It's really an open-ended problem. Um, there is no like silver bullet neural network that will just kind of solve the problem. So I guess that's one part um, that should be emphasized that this isn't really a, a one-and-done problem. But I guess one thing I could talk about that I'm kind of working on now um, that also kind of goes to the question about like what can we do with such a large collection of gravitational lenses um, is that first of all, from data scientist perspective or computer scientist, the first big advantage of having such a large collection is we can reuse it to retrain the network to you know get even better and then find even more neural nets. I mean, find even more gravitational lenses. So you get this kind of snowball effect where the more lenses you find. Um, the better your data set gets and the better your neural net gets and then the more you can find again. But maybe from a more interesting um, academic perspective, well, I I guess maybe I should start from a more fundamental perspective, um, is that I guess in image recognition, there's a sort of spectrum of problems, which is um, it ranges all the way from, say, SIFAR-10, which is like handwritten digit analysis, which is a very simple problem um, and is considered to have like been basically solved. Um, all the way to ImageNet, which is totally off the scale in terms of complexity. Um, it's nearly open-ended. And I'd say in terms of complexity, we're somewhere in the middle. So we're looking for relatively simple features, but it's very hard to pin down exactly in words what we're looking for. Um, so you can't really write a deterministic algorithm that kind of finds these features. It's it's very finicky. So this poses uh, this puts us in an interesting position because then we can ask neural network we can pose interesting questions, I guess. One example might be, um, like, what gives an image of a, neural, uh, of a gravitational lens away as really a gravitational lens? So what really indicates to the neural net that, oh, this is a gravitational lens? And this is kind of a pretty interesting open-ended problem in the field of image recognition. Um, and the reason that I think that we're in a unique position to tackle it is that, as I mentioned before, our problem is somewhere in the middle of the spectrum in terms of complexity. So we have a relatively, um, compared to ImageNet, we have pretty simple features, but it's also complex enough to be an interesting problem where there's sort of all these um, complications that are going on that we might not, not have any idea about. So we have this sort of inverse problem. Part of my work has been kind of exploring um, all the different ways that the neural network metaphorically thinks about this observed data, and that can give us some interesting insights about you know which features... Um, really indicate a gravitational lens. So, yeah. Great. So you found several hundred lenses, like 300 and some lenses, correct? 300 and something, if I remember correctly? Well, first paper, yes. Yeah, first paper. So uh, back here, that's my, leads to my next question. What are, what are the next steps in finding, finding more lenses in this research that are going to be ongoing? And uh, for the students, or do you plan on continuing this uh, after you graduate or in your future studies? So uh, we are very close uh, to uh, get a new paper uh, published uh, that will report over 1,000 uh, new gravitational lenses. Um, and so that is the, in the immediate future. 
Uh, and um, uh, we actually um, are thinking about conducting one more search. Uh, so our first paper is on data release seven of the legacy surveys. And this paper, which hopefully will come out soon, is based on uh, data release eight. And uh, I've been told uh, by people at Noir Lab that there will be a data release nine. And so we will do one additional search. At the beginning of this project, we were, um, you know, just starting out, we were not, um, you know, uh, all that confident about predicting what we are able to find. Uh, at this stage, I think we are confident enough to say we expect, I won't give a number, let, let's just say a large number of new lenses uh, beyond data, data release eight. So pretty much after this is all done, if we think of gravitational lenses, sounds like a majority of the gravitational lenses will be discovered by this group. That is the hope. Yes, that is the hope. Um, now, there are two, uh, uh, there's another aspect, which is that um, after um, we found that first batch of lenses, we apply for uh, time to observe our lenses uh, with the Hubble Space Telescope, and our uh, proposal was accepted. And so we are now receiving images from Hubble uh, once every three days or so. And uh, so, the, so another big part of this uh, group is to analyze these images, to model these gravitational lensing systems, to answer big questions like the nature of dark matter. And this is something that um, uh, Andy and William have both uh, are working on actively, and Chris is dipping his toe into it as well. And uh, in this regard, uh, we have a lot work to do, a, a lot of work to do, because we have so many systems. And the, the 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 it's it's very exciting, but the but the both the uh, algorithmic and the mathematical aspects of gravitational lensing uh, is uh, uh, takes a lot of work. And uh, so I I you know. I feel very fortunate to have, you know, such talented students, uh, undergraduate students, you know, that are capable of, that are able to take on these challenging tasks and, uh, you know, producing, you know, produce amazing results. Well, I will say one thing and I'll, I'll let the students say, say what, what they want to say. Uh, it, I, I find it amazing that, uh, you know, the work that you all have done at Noir Lab and made the data public that allows, uh, that makes this, uh, you know, these discoveries possible. I don't know if you guys want to say anything to add to that. Uh, I guess uh, thanks for having us. I mean, it was a really great opportunity to talk about what we do and uh, to the general public. Well, it was a pleasure having you, William. And by the way, so this is also, you know, a, a rare uh, 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 group where we have students from two different universities. Um, uh, Chris is from USF, University of San Francisco, and uh, Andy and William are from uh, UC Berkeley. Okay, great. Well, I'd like to thank you all for joining me. Thank you, uh, Sheng and uh, William and Christopher and Andy. It's been a pleasure talking to all of you today. And uh, I'm going to sign off with this. Uh, this is Bob Sparks signing off this episode of the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Bye, everyone. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Cool. 
The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. <laughs>